I'm Jason Lewis. And I'm Todd Deshada. Welcome to Climate Optimists. As a couple concerned citizens, we're on a journey to explore climate solutions and ways each of us can make a difference. As we near the end of June, we wanted to humbly ask folks one more time to help spread the word about the podcast by telling family members or friends that you think might like it. The reality is, you know, personal recommendations are the most effective way to convince folks to to listen to a new podcast. And the more listeners we get, the more we can help educate and, and drive action on the climate solutions that we're, we're discussing. Additionally, we are looking to collect personal stories about how the podcast has influenced you. Take a moment and submit a comment on our website. Include your first name, where you're from, and how the podcast has had an impact. And we're planning to feature some of your stories on, on upcoming episodes. So Todd, we're, uh, we're talking Green New Deal today. What did you know about the topic before we uh, began our research? Well, I knew, I, I knew of it mainly through probably the political lens, uh, you know, when AOC kind of came to her meteoric rise, I guess you would say, in, in the political world and, and kind of brought the Green New Deal with her and, and kind of the controversy that surrounded it. And I, I basically knew it as a, a climate deal of some kind and a jobs deal that I hadn't really delved into a lot of the details of it. I knew some of the overarching goals of it and some of the things we've talked about, you know, on the podcast, but yeah, not, not, not tons of detail. How about you? Yeah, I think similarly, like I, I knew that, um, AOC, I guess we, for those who may not know who AOC is, although I think most folks do, AOC is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a representative from the state of New York. And she, in conjunction with Senator Ed Markey from Massachusetts, basically introduced the resolution. And I knew it was climate focused. I knew it was jobs focused. And I knew right away it drew a ton of criticisms from the right side of the the political spectrum. But that was, yeah, honestly, the the crux of it for me. Yeah. So before we, you know, really dig in, I've heard you've got a a good reason for hope for us this week. Yeah. So Sevilla, Spain is going to be the first city to start naming heat waves. Heat waves have been dubbed the silent killer. And uh, the city just experienced its worst heat wave in 60 years back in May. And the frequency of heat waves has doubled in Spain compared to, to previous decades. And going forward, their plan is to name, classify heat waves kind of the same way that we do, you know, hurricanes and tornadoes and things like that. So, which obviously the goal of that is, is to raise awareness of, of the deadly impacts of climate change. Um, we know a little bit about heat wave. We, we should have named Heat Dome. That was just last summer, was it not? Yeah, about this time, a year ago, we had Heat Dome. In Portland, which was really odd, you know, we don't usually experience super hot temps. And we had this weather event where we were, you know, 116 plus degrees here. It was pretty extraordinary. So I, I concur. I think that would be a good idea. Heat Dome, <laughs> heat dome Jerry or something. <laughs> I, I think it is. It's a, uh, it, it can feel like something that's maybe incremental to, to talk about this as a reason for hope, but I do. I do think it's important that anytime we can talk about these, the severity of these events getting worse, whether it's a wildfire or a heat wave, and 
draw awareness to that and the linkages back to climate change, the more effective we are at, you know, building that political will we need to get legislation passed. And yeah, I mean, you know, I don't think the people of the Pacific Northwest are going to forget anytime soon that, you know, that heat dome that we had, you know, for an area that usually doesn't get temperatures much above the 90s in Fahrenheit, having, you know, four days of five days of over 110 degrees, you know, burning the foliage on plants. I mean, it was, it was pretty apocalyptic. It was really crazy. And, and I guess if you're in an area, you know, like Spain is here where you, you are going to start the practice of, of naming them because you have that many of them, it starts to really hit home. Totally. Yeah. So good for, uh, good for Sevilla and hopefully other cities follow suit. Well, in starting, you know, today's episode, we thought we would begin with the basic question of, you know, what is the Green New Deal? And, you know, equally important, what is it intended to accomplish? And so, in essence, it is a U.S. congressional resolution focused on addressing climate change while trying to tackle a number of other things, you know, predominantly economic inequality, but a whole host of things even beyond that. It was inspired by the the new deal which was enacted by president you know franklin d roosevelt that was really intended to help the united states recover from you know what was then the the great depression and you know we talk about kind of the highlights of it it draws upon the report that the intergovernmental panel on climate change did back in this was 2018 where they talked about the importance of keeping global temperature rise below 1.5 degrees Celsius. The the resolution also calls out a number of other crises facing, you know, the U.S. Reduce life expectancy, you know, access to clean air and water, economic inequality, the stagnating of of hourly wages since the ni- 1970s, the racial wealth divide. So a whole host of things beyond you know just climate change. And then given that calls for massive investments in things like clean energy, updating our grid, electrifying our, our transportation, you know, cutting emissions in the uh, agricultural sector and on and on. So, so really, you know, it sort of lays out climate change and, and all these other problems facing the nation and calls for this big investment to try to, to help address them. Again, I think that the best way to inform yourself is to to go and check out the resolution itself and read through it. Um, but yeah, what did you think, Todd? I mean, how would you describe it in a nutshell, knowing that it's it's such an expansive thing? Yeah, I, I guess, like you said, it is it is a fairly easy read. It kind of bullets everything out for you. Of course, each of those bulleted lines <laughs> is probably like the plans that would go in place to carry any of it out would be massive. It kind of feels more like a movement, uh, you know, in some ways more than a bill, like an entire uh, philosophy change. But it's also, a lot of it is a, really a social uh, programs bill. You know, that was one of the things maybe that was surprising about it is that there was a lot of social programs in it. And I think that's controversial for some. I think especially it contributes to the size and the cost. Really, it's hard to find a cost yeah, I think we've struggled trying to find any kind of concrete number, and there's some some widely speculative numbers I think from the right that I think are a little bit, maybe not a little bit, but but a lot exaggerated. <laughs> um, 
but I think it's helpful to try to separate that out too. And I think it would be helpful to, to get good numbers of estimated costs associated with, with the portions of, of the bill so people could really see you know what they were looking at. But to me, it takes a huge stab at trying to get us where we need to be with the climate. You know, I think some of the emissions goals are right on. Yeah. And I, I'm with you. It's like, I, I know they were probably trying to keep it at a high level to not be overly prescriptive about the types of solutions that we need to, to implement. Like they wanted to sort of leave that up to debate. Right. But the problem in, in not having more specificity is then it the debate then becomes, you know, wildly different in terms of what it will cost and what it will do. It's sort of like you kind of got to get to that next level down of specificity. Right. Which really kind of leads to the next question, which is, has the Green New Deal been implemented in any way, shape or form? And and the short answer is is technically no, because it is just a resolution. And even if it were to, you know, to pass Congress, it would be, you know, non-binding. It would, you know, it's more a, a statement of of goals, if you will. But the real answer is really kind of more complicated. And I, and I think the better question maybe is, you know, how has it had an impact despite the fact that it hasn't become a real piece of legislation? And I don't know, Todd, if you have thoughts there. Yeah, I think it's obvious, even though Biden distanced himself from the Green New Deal, especially when it seemed like he was kind of under attack uh, during some of the campaigning and for the presidency. But obviously, if you look at a lot of what's in his climate plan, it really follows a lot of the same ideas that were in the Green New Deal and kind of follows a lot of that framework. And between Build Back Better and the infrastructure bill, you see a lot of the a lot of the same stuff in it, even if it's not quite as aggressive as maybe the original Green New Deal was, but you definitely see that influence on his plan. There's some differences. For instance, his plan doesn't offer guarantees on jobs, food, housing, things like that. But it's it's obvious that there was some influence there. And uh, you seem like you had found some projects that kind of aligned itself with a lot of the goals of the Green New Deal. Yeah. So Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has a, a website where they talk about, it's roughly, I think, 60 projects that were funded as of this Earth Day that fit, you know, I don't know if you want to call it the pillars or or the aspirations of the Green New Deal, jobs, justice, and, and decarbonization. There's a whole host of these projects spread across, you know, the U.S. In terms of examples, like there's one in Pleasant Ridge, Michigan, project costs of about 650000 so, you know, still relatively small, where they're doing, you know, some water line replacement, you know, with the goal of ensuring safe drinking water. There's another project in Clarkstown, uh, New York, where they're set to implement, a, you know, some water drainage system upgrades, some wetland and stream habitat restoration, and stormwater improvements with the intent of reducing flooding. And again, that one too, I guess, meets sort of the the spirit of the Green New Deal. So, so yeah, even though it remains a resolution and a resolution that has yet to be passed by the full Congress, it's clear that the idea, you know, to your point about Biden, it's clearly had an impact, right? And and you know, even expanded well beyond the the borders of the U.S. Right. So, you know, talked about what it is, talked about um, kind of where things stand. I think the next logical question is like, well, you know what are the kind of the pros and cons? And there are ranging critiques from, you know, it's perceived price tag 
to its large scope to, you know, being kind of dubbed, if not explicitly, implicitly a sort of government overreach and, you know, attempt to control how we live our lives. And the controversy really started with the initial rollout where AOC's office published a draft doc with some more controversial ideas and that got out there into the public sphere. And then, as you can imagine, you had some congressional Republicans that kind of pounced on it and, you know, led for all sorts of fodder on, you know, right-wing news media. You know, some of the, you know, Republican senators, you had, you know, Tom Cotton from Arkansas who said, who indicated the proposal would confiscate cars and require Americans to ride along a high-speed rail, supposedly powered by unicorn tears. Um, <laughs> Senator John Barrasso of, of Wyoming warned that ice cream, cheeseburgers, and milkshakes would be a thing of the past because under the Green New Deal, livestock would be banned. And then okay. you, had, uh, you had President Trump that, that referred to it as a, quote, socialist nightmare that would ruin the American economy. Wow. Um, yeah, so like pretty... A bunch, of, bunch of SNL skits or something. Really? Right? Yeah. Yeah, it, it's almost satirical. The truth is, and you would see this if you go to the resolution, it talks about none of these things. You know, the reality is the Republican criticism should be taken into context from for a number of reasons. From my perspective, you know, chief among them is is all the fossil fuel money they get. You know, during the 2017-2018 election cycle, Republicans received 87% of the money given by the oil and gas industry and 95% of the money given from the coal industry. So sort of says it all right there and also explains why, you know, aside from a handful of Republicans who have called for the need to take action on climate, why we haven't seen any any substantive bill to address this global crisis. Um, mm -hmm. But putting kind of these partisan critiques aside, what, Tatashida, do you think are the pros and cons of the, uh, the Green New Deal? Well, I think if you look at the New Deal, the historic New Deal, it was, it was basically an economic stimulus package that was comprised of a jobs bill and an infrastructure bill, which this is similar to that, but it also is kind of a social network bill. It also addresses this big problem of climate change. It kind of has a lot in there about livability. So it really does a lot. And you could say that that's good or bad. I was surprised to find how popular the bill was. It kind of goes back to the, the episode we did here recently about perception and how right. depending climate on... Climate perceptions. Yeah, and how the media... how where you consume media and stuff, what your perception is. And I think this is one place where, again, what the people want differs from what politicians want or what they think the people should want, uh, especially yeah. with the conservative side of, of politicians, right? I mean, like you said, they're kind of answering to oil and gas, not their constituency of the people, because the, the, some of the numbers I've seen show that there's a 31-point margin of support for the Green New Deal, which which was higher, much higher than I thought it was. That number includes, you know, all Democrats, of course, a majority of independents and over a third of Republicans support the Green New Deal. So I think some of what comes out of Washington <laughs> is not reflective of what the country really wants. Does and, that ever happen? Yeah, right. <laughs> I think, too, 
I thought that maybe a lot of the extra stuff that's in this bill, other than climate, was hindering the bill. I think if you look at some of the numbers, I think more than 80% of the bill of the cost was for social programs that are in the bill. So that oh, wow. that leaves, you know, that that's quite a bit that's not tied to climate. And I know our podcast is about climate. So if you, if you think about the real cost of this thing, if you were to separate some of that out, it would make sense for us that maybe we should separate it out because we might have a better chance of getting the climate piece done. You know, Republicans, Democrats, you know, the legislators would be more more on board to get on because that's usually the major complaint of these things, right, is the, is the total cost. But some studies have shown that actually bundling all this stuff together makes people support it more. And interesting, especially amongst like uh, minority voters and some of those folks that where some of these social programs and the jobs programs could be huge, right? And so those folks really want that stuff in these bills to kind of package all this stuff together. And I, I also tried to check the cost comparison to what the original New Deal was. And surprisingly, they're, they're, they're pretty close. Obviously, if you look at total numbers, even if you look at inflation, when inflation is, is, is calculated, these bills are more expensive than, than the, new, you know, the New Deal was. But our economy is also 20 or 30 times bigger, too. So you can't, even with inflation right. added, you can't really make a, a dollar-to-dollar comparison. So you know they do GDP comparisons. And um, the New Deal was, was equal to about 2.8% of all goods and services sold in the United States. Um, some of Obama's bills, which there was the big American Recovery Act during that time, after right. that crash, there was uh, the Affordable Care Act in his term. Uh, that that combined averaged about 1% of GDP. So the New Deal was a big, big project, right, in its day. Um, Biden's plan, everything combined, American Rescue Plan and Infrastructure Bill is 2.1% GDP. So still not quite as big as the New Deal that that Roosevelt had. And if you if so if you think about it in those terms, the New Deal was a success, right? I mean, like we're all here, everything worked out. We used the <laughs> dams, we used the infrastructure, people got jobs. I think we're looking at a similar thing here. Robert Pollan, an economist at University of Massachusetts, thinks it is doable for us to get to net zero by 2050, spending around 2% of GDP each year, which is about $18 trillion, which is a lot of money. But when you spread it out over time, it, it's doable. So I think I think it's it's on the right track, and I hope people get behind it. What about you? I mean, what, what is your kind of takeaway from from what you've read and what you've learned? Well, I've, I've learned some more things and just, you know, hearing you uh, hearing you talk about the you know, public support piece. I I think the debate, the substantive debate to me is is one of like, you know, scope and one of cost. Mm -hmm. And and that question that you, you know, talked about, which is should we be doing climate only or climate plus all these things or some, you know, other iteration? And I think from a cost perspective, it seems that while the costs are anticipated to be high, it still is really kind of unclear exactly what we're dealing with without specific policy. So a lot of this feels kind of speculative. Um, mm -hmm. And then I think when you're also talking about cost, I think the thing that often gets missed 
whether we're talking about the Green New Deal or other climate packages, people focus on the price tag. And you know the media is guilty of this in in missing. But what if we don't do this? What is the cost? Because right, you know, all of us in our own lives are looking at like, well, yeah, I I have to make investments in X, Y, and Z. But what's the you know financial impact if I don't make certain investments? And so I think that's critical to making any sort of comparison here because the reality is climate change is going to cost trillions upon trillions of dollars. And any efforts made to mitigate climate change are still going to be smaller than climate change itself. So right. there is always a good return on investment. So, you know, so that's kind of the cost piece. I think the question of whether all the scope belongs with the bill is really, in my mind, the question should be, well, what's most uh, politically palatable? Like, there's a lot of stuff in the Green New Deal that clearly has huge appeal to your average American. The question is, are there pieces of that that make it less politically viable? And if so, can you set those aside? And I'm not saying I know what any of those are, but Mm -hmm. I think that's the, the critical question to ask is, do we need to really try to do all of this in the same bill? Or can a case be made that we, you know, break out certain portions of it to you know, lower the cost and, and increase the political viability. Right. Because I think with any piece of at least climate legislation, it's good to be able to look at it from an efficiency perspective. And what I mean is like, if you're talking about the Green New Deal, or you're talking about a carbon tax, or you're talking about cap and trade, it really ought to be measured in terms of like cost per ton of, you know, CO2 removed or, or avoided. Right. And, and I don't know how, without more specifics, you measure the efficiency of, of the Green New Deal. But I do think that, you know, when we're talking about climate policy, that should really be on the table because, you know, there are people who aren't as concerned about costs, but there are some that are always going to be concerned about costs and it's good to have their, their votes. So I guess I'm not offering my own perspective here. I, I, I think yeah. it is a, a positive thing, but I think that there's, a, there's more questions that need to be answered you know, before I would sort of say, well, let's move forward with it as it is. Right. I think it's helpful if you have a cost on, if you, if you have a cost of carbon and then you can kind of quantify what that is going to be, right? And you, then it helps you to kind of judge some of these actions, right? Against against carbon removal, right? And, and prevention in a sense. Yeah. Well, because any good business, whenever they're looking to make a decision, they look at, the proposal and then the other alternatives. Government spending usually gets put out there into the media and people talk, focus on the price tag. But that's just, again, that's just super misleading if you don't talk about what the cost of the status quo is. And I think that's probably the most important piece that we're missing here is that, yeah, it's going to be expensive to fix you know, climate change, but it's going to be a whole lot more expensive and miserable and you know, name your adjective than you know, if we don't do something. Right. Right. For sure. I'm on my high horse again. What can I say? That's what we do. (laughs) That's what we make the big, big money for. Big money, huge money here at Climate Optimus. Well, you know, I think that leads into the question we always ask, which is, you know, really, what can we do? And this week, we want to kind of take that in a little bit different direction. So rather than focusing this week's kind of action opportunities on, you know, the Green New Deal, 
we'd like to step back bigger picture and look at the fact that we have an election coming up in, in November and we're almost in July and it's going to be critical if we want to continue to make progress on addressing climate change that we elect the right folks. So our ask is, you know, take the time to find out who, you know, is running for your state and national level offices, you know, identify the candidates who are most likely to be called climate champions. The League of Conservation Voters is a great source to get a sense of how a candidate, you know, views climate change and, and the environment more broadly. And then once you've kind of done that, I would encourage everybody to get involved, you know, whether that's financially donating time to a campaign or both, because, you know, we, we talk about the year 2030 a lot. It's eight years away. We still need some big legislation to put us on the right trajectory to hit that. And the only way that's going to happen is if we have the right people in office this election cycle. So not to be dramatic, but I think this you know, really is the election cycle that's going to make or break our ability to meet those critical climate targets for 2030. I don't know. What, do, what are your thoughts, Todd? I like that. I like that a lot. I am in full agreement. <laughs> so yeah, find out who's running for office, identify the folks that are going to be most likely to help move us forward on climate change, and then get actively involved in, in supporting them. So I think that's a wrap for this week. Again, we'll have... Um, resources on our website where you can learn more about the, the Green New Deal. Thanks to everybody for, for tuning in. Come back next week for more climate solutions, reasons for hope, and ways each of us can make a difference. Climate Optimus is made possible by Climate Stewards Collective. You can find us on the web at climateoptimist.co. And don't forget to follow us on social at Climate Optimist Podcast.